Right, well this morning it's sort of know your enemy. Uh, I, I believe during the war that uh, it was a common phrase. Know the enemy, know who you're up against. Um, I don't know that because I was around during the war, I wasn't. Uh, at the moment Belinda is rather distressed because I was 30 the other day, you see. And I mean, she, she, it's, it's sort of up, upset her to think she's married to someone in their third decade now. And No, their fourth one. And um, and also I've come into needing glasses, you see. So I mean, I don't know whether that is my age showing or something. But it means that I've got a whole whole new load of things I can do with my hands when I preach now. You see, I can take the glasses off and, and sort of do that with them if I'm feeling silly, you know. But anyway, know your enemy. And uh, it's, it's good for us to understand a bit about how it is that Satan attacks. And here, the reading that we've had was the time when Jesus himself was attacked via temptation by Satan. Uh, Jesus was attacked in lots of different ways by Satan. As soon as he was born, Jesus was attacked by Satan. For instance, Herod tried, killed all the babies, didn't he? Now that was a satanic attack because Satan wanted to stop Jesus in what he was doing. And every attack he tried failed. But here, as Jesus is preparing to go out and to start preaching and healing the sick, uh, and preparing himself to actually die on the cross, we see that Satan really takes an attack on him via temptation. <clears throat> so at the point here in Jesus' life, he's been through his life fully prepared by God to go out and preach. He's been humbled. He's learned through the suffering of the loneliness of a child because remember, even his own family didn't believe in him. And he's been prepared by God. And he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been baptised with the Holy Spirit. You remember when John baptised him in water. Afterwards the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus as a dove. And he was anointed. And after that he preached and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Jesus has been filled with the Spirit and is ready now to begin the ministry that he came for. And here, the very first thing that happens, and this is interesting... It's not a preaching tour, it's not a healing of the sick and the miracles, they all came later. But the first thing that happens after Jesus' anointing is that the Holy Spirit himself arranges a head-on collision between Jesus and Satan. And this head-on crash between them was arranged in very difficult circumstances for Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note and to understand this. The Holy Spirit himself arranges this. The Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tested by Satan, to be tempted by him. And one of the things that we need to learn from this is that part of what God wants to do in our lives is to bring us to victory in the hard circumstances. When we get into tough situations, our immediate reaction is, Oh Lord, deliver me out of this. Now, in God's time, he will. But before that, he wants to set us free in the problems. God doesn't want us to have a victory whereby every time something comes along, we run. All right. He wants us to overcome. He wants us to find his victory in the difficult circumstances. I remember once going through a fairly dark stage of testing from God. And it was real darkness is the only way that I could describe it. And, and I was really praying and waiting 
and sort of staking everything on the fact that, that give it time and I'll see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'll see Jesus at the end of the tunnel and eventually I'll come out of this tunnel and God will have done his work in me. And yet through those months, because it went on for a long time, what in fact happened is that the Lord set me free, not by bringing me out of the tunnel into the light, but showing me that Jesus was the light of the world and he was in the tunnel with me. And that's what gave the victory. And once the victory was there, then God will take you out of the tunnel because it's done its work. But it's interesting to see here that God does want to work in us a victory within the situations that we are in. Whereas very often we just want to kind of, you know, get out, oh Lord, you know, get me out of this. When God is saying, well no, you're in that situation because I want to get something out of you. And we need to understand that, the way that God works in us through the hard times. And I've spoken a lot about that uh, in the times that I've come here. And we need to understand as well that there is nothing wrong when we end up confronted by Satan. When Satan attacks us, in whatever way it is, but here we're talking about temptation, we've got to understand that this is the normal Christian life. There is nothing abnormal when Satan is throwing everything he's got at you. The whole time God is in complete control and even satanic attacks against us are part of God's plan to work in our lives. And this satanic warfare is something that we need to get used to. It is perfectly normal. I'm reminded of uh, someone who was preaching at a church and afterwards someone went up to him and he said, Brother, do you have peace? And he said, No, I have warfare. Very often when we think about the peace of God, we kind of think that it's a quiet life. It's not. We're at war. There's a battle going on. And by looking at the way that Satan attacks Jesus, we can learn a bit about the opponent that we've got. And there are three temptations. No, they're not. There are more than that. I'll come on to that later. But the Bible tells us about three ways that Satan attacks Jesus through temptation. And we'll look at each one. First of all, in verse 3, the, the, what Satan does is he tempts Jesus to be selfish. The first attack that's recorded in the Bible is that Satan tempts Jesus to be selfish. Now, Satan is not a fool. However deceived he is, Satan is very, very clever. He knows our weak points. And if there's one way in which you can say the mark of human beings, the mark of you and I, is that we are selfish. We are selfish people. It's really part of what sin is all about. Now picture Jesus is in the wilderness and he's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And quite understandably, he was hungry. So Satan comes along and his temptation to Jesus is to be selfish. Now we've got to understand at this point to be hungry and to want bread, there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It is not sinful to want to eat. But the thing was that at this particular time, God was requiring Jesus to be fasting. Now there are times when quite legitimate needs that we have, there's nothing wrong with them, but God will put us through a time when he takes them away from us. Here, there's nothing wrong with eating, but Jesus was meant to be fasting. Therefore, Satan comes along and he tries to get Jesus to put his immediate requirements before the will of your father, of his father. 
And what Satan says, he says, look, in effect, he says, look, if your father in heaven isn't meeting your needs, here you are, hungry. If your father in heaven isn't meeting your needs, well, you're his son, you meet them yourself. Look, they're stones. Turn them into bread, you're the son of God. I know you can do that, Jesus. And certainly Jesus could have done. There's no two ways about this. Jesus could have spoken to a stone and turned it into a loaf of bread. No problem. But if Jesus had done that, it would have broken his absolute dependence on God. It would have been a sin. Remember in John 5.19 what Jesus says. He says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, the Son does likewise. Now this is our Christian life. I've said again and again here that Christianity isn't what we do for Jesus. It's what Jesus does through us. Now in precisely the same way, Jesus was an ordinary man like you and I. He was the Son of God. He was God himself. But when God becomes a man, he does it properly. And Jesus was 100% man with all the weaknesses that we have. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And the secret of the victory of Jesus' life was that throughout, he was totally dependent on his Father. Whatever his Father did, whatever his Father said, Jesus did. And at this time, his father said, fast. And Satan does everything he can to get Jesus, through selfishness, to break and sin against his father. And of course, if Satan, if Satan had got Jesus to sin, our redemption would not have existed. Jesus had to be the sinless son of God throughout, and Jesus never sinned. Now, Satan does this to us so often. This is almost a dead cert for him, isn't it? You think the number of times that you give in to selfishness, the number of times that you and I end up putting ourselves first over somebody else or over God's will, and the number of times when we know in our heart that what we did then was utter selfishness, or that the reason that we got cross with somebody then was utter selfishness, Nothing to do with them having done wrong. It's just that what they did stopped us immediately in that moment of time getting what we wanted. And it sparks off this selfishness and Satan attacks if he can try and get us to be selfish. Jesus, by some theologians, and this is good, has been called the man for others. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he was a man for others. He came not to be served. Jesus said, I have come to serve. Jesus considered himself to be a servant. He said, whatever you need, I am here to give that to you. People needed healing, so Jesus said, I will heal you. People needed forgiveness, so Jesus said, I will forgive you. People needed teaching, so Jesus said, I will teach you. He was a servant. He came to give himself for others. Now, part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, J-O-Y. And it's been said that the secret of joy is this, Jesus others and yourself and that is the secret of joy it's to put what Jesus wants first and then it's to put what other people want second considering ourselves last and that is the opposite of selfishness and so Satan comes at us again and again and again and we need to recognize the way that Satan attacks us like that 
And as we can see and acknowledge before God our selfishness, it's in coming to God in repentance and being honest before him and saying, Lord, yes, I am so selfishness. And there are many, many ways in which we're selfish, but we, we, can't, we don't admit it, do we? You know, we, we blind ourselves to our own sin. And part of God bringing us to victory in regards to this is simply as confessing our selfishness, really judging it for what it is, so that when we see, oh, I'm being selfish in regards to my wife, in regards to my husband, in regards to my children, in regards to my parents, in regards to the people at school, in regards to the people at work, is really seeing, yes, that is selfishness, and coming to God and saying, Lord, Satan's got the better of me. He's tempted me and I've fallen again and again. Lord, I, I confess that sin, and in that confession of it, that's the beginning of coming to victory. So I think we need to understand this, that throughout our Christian lives, the most dangerous attack that Satan can put upon us is temptation to be selfishness. We would tend to think that the most dangerous attack on our Christian lives would be if uh, Satan whipped up a mob and stoned us like they did Stephen. That was a satanic attack, but that wasn't dangerous. And the reason it wasn't dangerous is because as soon as Stephen died, he went straight to the Lord and he brought glory to God. The reason why temptation to sin is so dangerous is because we do sin. And sin is dangerous. Can you see what I'm getting at? In God's eyes, for us to lose our lives and go to be with him, that thrills him. It will certainly thrill us. We might think, oh, oh, I don't fancy being martyred. But I'll tell you this, one microsecond after you've been martyred, if it ever happens to you, you'll be thrilled. And I'll be thrilled. I don't fancy the... I mean, there's so much to leave down here, isn't there? And that's not wrong. You know, I mean, we have attachments. But the point is, however much we feel, I don't want to go yet, Lord. Whenever our time comes, a second afterwards... A bit, is, is this because I'm playing with my glass? I'm sorry. You'll get used to it in the years to come. Well, the point is that as soon as we lose our lives and open our eyes and we're with Jesus in heaven, we'll, we'll be thrilled about it. But sin is different because each time we sin, each time we're selfish, Satan gains the victory and we grieve our Father's heart. So can you see why temptation is the best weapon that Satan can have? Knocking Christians off doesn't harm the church. If you look through the annals of church history, you'll find that with every persecution, every time that Satan attacks the church by martyring people, the church grows and is strengthened. But you look at churches where all the Christians in it, and I compare myself, are giving in to temptation to sin. Those churches are weak and powerless. Can you see what I'm saying? Satan knows that the best attack he can lay on anyone is simply to whisper, go on, get your own don't give it. What, you want that? Go and get it. Don't worry about others. This is the most dangerous thing that you and I can face. This temptation to selfishness. Now, in reply to this, what Jesus quotes is this. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, Understand that bread here means material things. And there is nothing wrong with material things whatsoever. 
We need material things because we're material people. God has created us that way. Jesus himself was totally material, like you and I. There is nothing wrong with material things, but bread alone is wrong. Because what you've got then is that the only thing that we're running our lives according to is what we want. We are no longer running our lives according to what God is saying to us in any one particular situation. In the actual Greek, what this will be in a literal translation is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that is proceeding now from the mouth of God to you. Our lives should not be dictated to by our immediate needs. Our lives should be dictated to according to what God is speaking to us now. I don't just mean what the Bible says, although obviously God will never say anything to us that conflicts with the Bible. But the point is that all the time God wants to speak to us. And we need to listen. We need to be hearing. So that whatever God is saying to us now, that we should be doing. And but the point is that very often that goes against certain things that we want. And therefore Satan comes on and he says, no, don't live by what God is saying now, because you want this, that and the other. Or if you do that, that will hurt. Or if you do that, you might upset someone. Can you see what I mean? And so Satan cuts us off from our Father, because we're no longer living according to what God is saying to us now in this moment of time. Was it that Jesus said, he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now this is what God is saying to us. He says, look, first of all, let us be surrendered to our Father, and he will give us everything we need and more. But can you see that if we put what we need, if we put our pleasures, nothing wrong with pleasures, but if we put our pleasures first, we will be cut off in our ongoing with God, and we will become powerless. And it's very interesting, again, that Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his power? No. His miracles? No. His righteousness. Can you see how important this is? The way that Satan's most powerful and effective attack against us is always going to be to make us fall into sin. Just moment by moment. Not necessarily great, tremendous, horrible sins, as we would call them, but a little bit of selfishness is as horrible to God as a little bit of adultery, as a little bit of fornication. We need to understand this. Selfishness, our own selfishness, is the greatest enemy we've got. Hence the need to be in surrender to God and when we've been selfish to confess it, to get cleansed of it so that we can go on more and more to experience victory in that area of our lives. Now, the second temptation that Satan brought to Jesus was totally different. That one didn't work. So the next one was totally different. The first temptation to be selfish attacked Jesus in regards to his flesh in the sense that he was a weak man. And Satan was right, he's only a man, with all the weakness of a man, I'll attack him there. That didn't work. So now G Satan changes his tactics. And in this one, he attacks Jesus' faith. And what he does is he tries to get Jesus to doubt his calling. Verse 6, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. 
For it is written, he will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now look at that, if you are the Son of God. Satan's deadly if. And you will find again and again and again that when you're going through a time when you find that you're doubting God, when you've lost that immediate joy and peace, when you're starting to get depressed, when you're starting to get worried, if you look back, you will find that every time that begins with a train of thought when you're thinking, oh, but what if, what if, what if God doesn't do it? Or what if I do that? My goodness, what will the implications be? Can you see, and you start to get fearful, you start to get depressed, you think, well, what if God doesn't support me? What if what I'm praying for doesn't happen? And you will find every time it's begun, because Satan has put a line of argument in your mind, which is pure doubt, and you've latched onto it. So Satan says, what if? And you say, oh my goodness, yes, Satan, you're right. And you start to think it through. Now this is precisely what he does here to Jesus. And the test is, he says, look Jesus, just to double check that you really are the Son of God, why don't you throw yourself down off of the temple and the angels will bear you up and that will be a fantastic miracle and then you'll know once and for all that you really are the Son of God. So here, he attacks Jesus' faith by saying, go miracle hunting, Jesus. Go miracle hunting. Get a few miracles and then you'll really know that God is with you. Now, miracle hunting in this sense is not true faith. And in Romans 14 verse 23, Paul says, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a tremendous statement, isn't it? Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And remember that what Satan wants is to get us to sin. This is, this is the whole idea of temptation. Now, we've got to understand this thing about hunting for miracles. Because what Jesus says, he quotes Deuteronomy, all the quotes here are from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, again it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, what Jesus is doing, he's sort of going back there, Alright, back in his mind to what happened at a place called Massah in the wilderness. When what was happening, God was leading his people through the wilderness and he provided everything that they needed. And yet every time they ran out of water, what they did is they said, oh, God doesn't love us, God's deserted us, God's brought us here to die. And then they're saying in their hearts, God, the only way that we'll believe that you love us is if you work a miracle for us. You give us water, we'll believe that you love us. Alright? So God worked the miracle, gave them water, they drank, it satisfied their thirst. Then they got thirsty again. Oh Lord, if you love us, you'll give us water. Can you see, they're putting the Lord their God to the test. What they're saying is, well come on God, let's see if you really match up to what you say about yourself. Now can you see the presumption, can you see the arrogance, the pride, when we as creatures rise up to our Creator and say, well come on God, let's see if you really are what you're cracked up to be. If you love me, do this, this, this and this for me. Now can you see how terribly wrong that is? It's terrible when we do that. You see, the point is that God has shown his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That is enough. And the important thing to realise that if we never saw another miracle, 
that would not give us any cause to doubt God's love. Because if we ever want reassurance that he loves us, then we can look to what Jesus did on the cross. And that is enough. If we demand of God anything over and above that, then that is spiritual pride and arrogance flying completely in the face of God. And sometimes Satan tempts people, and Christians, they do this, they end up putting God to the test. I find myself doing it sometimes, I have to repent of it. I think, oh dear, you know, or everything's going wrong, if God loved me, this, this, this and this would happen. And when we end up doing that, we're putting God to the test, and we're going miracle hunting. Now having said that, I certainly don't want to put you off the idea of praying for miracles or even expecting to see them. Because there's no two ways. We're told in the scripture that Jesus wants to work miracles through us, and we can expect to see them. But the important thing to realize, there's um, a, a bit through the prophet Malachi, and what God says to the people through this prophet, he says, prove me herewith, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you down a blessing you can't contain. Now we've got to make this distinction. If you put God to the test, which is what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here, what you're doing is you're saying, come on God, you know, if you really love me then do this, you do this and then I'll have faith in you. And you see that and that is sin. But when we're talking about proving God, and he himself invites us to do it, what we're talking about there is God saying to us, hey look, I'm a God of miracles, I'm a God of power. I'm the same today as I always was. So if you, if you really step out in faith and prove me, I'll work the miracles for you. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. You see, when you put God to the test, the reason you're doing that is because you want, alright, you want miracles for you, be it to bolster your faith or whatever. But when we prove God, what we're doing there is we're saying, Lord, I want everyone to see how wonderful you are. I want you to work these signs and wonders so that people can see. And what we're doing then is for God. Can you see the difference? When we're going after miracles just for us, we're putting God to the test and it's a sin. But when we're wanting miracles in order for people to see the glory of God, then that is perfectly good. That is perfectly right. And God wants us to do that. But can you see here that Satan is working on Jesus to try and get him to, to go miracle hunting in the wrong sense, saying, well, look, you know, jump off the pinnacle of the temple because then you'll know for sure, Jesus, won't that be lovely? And again, it was try to get Jesus to, to get a miracle for purely selfish reasons. Now, Satan is especially subtle here because when he comes at Jesus, he now, he backs it up with the Bible. Now, this is very, very... See, Satan is a better theologian than you or I could ever be. Satan knows and understands the Bible better than we can. And he is a, a, a master at twisting it. Twisting it. And it's interesting because here he's saying, look Jesus, I'm, I'm putting to you the idea that if you throw yourself off the temple, then you'll know that you're the Son of God. You'll have a lovely miracle and everyone will say, oh yes, he is the Son of God, you see. And, in, and, and look Jesus, in the Old Testament, there's a verse here that says you ought to do it. And he he's trying to deceive Jesus and then back it up with the Bible. Now this is interesting because what Satan quotes is Psalm 91. And there is no doubt that here is a psalm and there's a promise that 
that there are God's people who, if, you know, who will be lifted up by the angels unless they strike their foot on the stone. It's a psalm which is promising supernatural help in a time of trouble. Now the question we've got to ask is that if this psalm applied to Jesus, then Satan was right to quote it. If Satan is quoting the Bible correctly, then Jesus ought to have done what Satan has said. But it's very, very subtle. Because if you look at Psalm 91 in context, what you've got is a promise to Jews. And it's a psalm of reassurance to Jews, promising them supernatural help at a time when there are incredible incredibly terrifying things going on on earth and it's a promise that though ten thousands will be falling all around them they will be safe now if you really look at this psalm and put it in context it's a psalm which refers to the tribulation it's a psalm which refers to the 144,000 Jews who are raised up during the time of the Antichrist to preach the gospel and nothing Satan can do can touch them. They have supernatural protection from all the things going on in the world, all the death, all the wars, all the judgments from God coming down. So what Satan is doing here is that he's quoting the Bible out of context to try and back up his argument. Now this is why you and I need to, to really be, as much as we're able to, getting to understand the scriptures so that we can test everything. Satan will always be able to try and tempt you to unbelief or whatever and then even give you bits of the Bible to try and back up his argument. But you'll find that it's always because he's twisting it. There are so many people in the church today with, with so many false doctrines coming into you know, into the church, and men are doing this, being used by the devil, yet using the Bible to back up their arguments. It's very, very important that any time that, that we're using the Bible to back something up that we're doing, we need to make sure that we're taking it in context. And any time you, you come across parts of the Bible, or you feel that God is speaking to you through the Bible about something, then if you're not able to really know for yourself whether you're taking it out of context, go to someone who does understand the Bible a bit better. Go to the pastor, or go to a Bible teacher. Find out. But don't let Satan fool you and deceive you by quoting the scriptures out of context. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul says this, he says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, in regards to signs and wonders, I think this needs to be said. God wants to work miracles in his church today. He never wanted to stop. But because of the unbelief of the church, signs and wonders are a bit of an oddity today. But they're God's norm. God wants to be working signs and wonders through us, his people. And one of the things that I really believe that God said to me in regards to the present time, and I believe that we're moving now into the last years of our life on this planet. I can't say that absolutely in Jesus' name that is true, because I might be wrong, but I'm but I'm I can't prove that from the Bible. But I'm convinced that we're approaching the last time revival before the rapture and the church goes. And one of the things that the Lord said to me is that the people that he's going to be using to work these signs and wonders are going to be the Christians who don't need to see them. This is very, very important. If we need to see signs and wonders to keep our faith going, that's unbelief. 
All we need to keep our faith going is what Jesus has done for us in the Word of God. That's all we need. But if we're needing to see miracles as well to keep us going, then that is unbelief and we won't see them. But it's when we're at that point where we say, Jesus, we rest in you. Our security is in you. Our faith is in you. And if we never see another miracle in our lives, that won't make us doubt. Your love, you'll still be the same. All the time, you're still the same. Now, it's those people who are going to be used to work the signs and wonders because it's those people who have got the real faith. So we walk by faith and not by sight. But there's a pattern in the Bible, and it's this. Faith always turns into sight. You see, when you really have faith for something, when God has said, this is a miracle that I'm going to do, when you really have true faith for that, then in God's time, what you're believing for will happen. Faith will always become sight. But if you walk by sight and not by faith, you'll never get to faith. Can you see what I'm saying? It's that way round. But be assured, faith will always become sight when you have assurance of what God is going to do. No matter whether it's a miracle, no matter how impossible it is, if you've got a promise from God, and he says that he's going to do something, then in God's time your faith will turn into sight. And you'll see it with your own eyes. So here we have Satan attacking Jesus' faith, trying to make him doubt his father and his father's love. But that didn't work either. So now Satan tries another approach. Again, a completely different approach. And what Satan now does is that he tries to get Jesus to compromise for short-term success. Read verse 9 with me. He said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, All these you will have if you fall down and worship me. Now can you see what's happening here? Jesus came to die on the cross. And in dying on the cross, he's been exalted, he's been given a name above every, every name, and Jesus is king of the universe. And one day, every knee will bow to Jesus, and Jesus will be the king of this planet. That is going to happen. And it's going to happen at the second coming when the work of redemption has been done. But what Satan says, he says, now then, Jesus, you've come to be king on this planet, haven't you? You know exactly what you're going to do. And he says, well, look, Jesus, right, you can have it now. Because if you fall down and worship me, I'll get you where you're going quicker. Can you see what I mean? Satan is trying to get Jesus to compromise for short-term success. Satan has always got a shortcut. I'll give you an example, and this has wrecked the church, and the Holy Spirit is working to rescue us from it. We know we're here to preach the gospel and to bring men and women into the kingdom. That is what we're here for, that the kingdom of God might grow, that more and more people come into the kingdom. So what Satan says, he says, right, you lot are here to preach the gospel and to get people into the kingdom, right. But it takes an awful long time sometimes, so I'll tell you what, let's, let's take a shortcut. Preach a really nice gospel. Because if you preach a really nice gospel, more people will come in. If you just tell people about what Jesus is going to do for them, but stay away from commitment. 
Leave out the bits that if any man comes to me, let him carry his cross. Satan says, leave that out. And can you see it's a compromise for short-term success? And Satan will always do this. See, the point is, Satan truly owned all the nations of the world. Paul says that Satan is the god of this world. And when Satan says, I will give you all the nations of the world, he had them to give. And that's what Jesus came for. But the point is that if Jesus had gone for this temptation, if Jesus had got the success Satan's way, it would have been at a price. And the price would have been this. Though the whole world would now be acknowledging King Jesus, they wouldn't be doing it because it was their own free will. They'd be doing it because Satan made them. And also, in order to do it, Jesus would have had to have knelt down and worshipped Satan when Jesus worshipped only his Father in heaven. Now, can you see what I mean when I say that Satan's always got a shortcut for us and it always involves a compromise? Satan is so quick to do this. Jesus came to be exalted to king via suffering and death. And here Satan says, forget the suffering and death, just kneel down and worship me and you can have it anyway. Now time and time and time again, Satan does this. He is very big on compromise. He has always got a quicker and an easier way than the Bible. He will always show you a shortcut. And it will always involve giving glory to Satan, i.e. worshipping him. You know, it's very interesting. Um, we heard... Uh, a preacher over at Bob Lee's, I think this was last year, and, and, and one of the things that he was saying is that every time we doubt God, we give glory to Satan. Every time we're negative, we glorify Satan. And if you glorify somebody, you're worshipping them. And it's very, very interesting. And Jesus replies to Satan here by talking about true worship, because Jesus knew that to compromise his mission one bit would be to bow down and worship Satan. And what he says, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now isn't it interesting here that Jesus replies from the scriptures in terms of worship. Jesus knows exactly what it means. When you follow Satan's compromise, when you compromise your faith, when you compromise your conscience, when I do it, we kneel down and worship Satan. And Jesus says, no, we worship only our God in heaven and him only shall we serve. And it's interesting because we, we tend to have a very wrong picture of worship. We tend to think that worship is like, for instance, purely coming together to sing and to praise and to pray and hear the word of God. Now, that most definitely is a part of worship, but it's not all of it by any means. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worshipping God does not mean that we raise our hands and say, Lord, we worship you. I mean, worship entails that, but we can say, Lord, we worship you, and not be worshipping God at all. Because if those words aren't backed up by a life of surrender, they're meaningless to God. Worship is not what we actually do. 
Worship is what flows from a surrendered life. And you can have Christians going through the actions of worship and praise and witnessing to people, but it's not pleasing to God because it's not coming from a surrendered heart. And this is important for us to realise. Our worship is absolute obedience to God. It's, it's surrender to Him. And anywhere where the Word of God gives us commandments, anywhere where God leads us in a particular way, when God convicts us to maybe say something or to do something, that if we don't do that, if we listen to Satan's temptation to compromise, then what we're doing is that we're disobeying God. And seeing it like that can help to give us an incentive to overcome this dreadful temptation that we have to compromise. We compromise so very easily in our preaching, in our proclamation. Satan says, well, if you really must preach the gospel, fine, but don't preach at all. So we leave great bits out. All right. And anyone who does manage to get saved through our preaching comes in and starts the Christian life more or less as a deformed baby Christian. Because they haven't had the truth and the whole truth. And they start their lives off. And Christians say, well, when I became a Christian, I didn't realise it meant all this surrender and obedience. But it's not surprising. No one told them. They were just invited to put their hand up and they were saved. And bang, that's it. Can you see? And, and the only people we've hurt in doing this are ourselves. Because we've got churches packed full of Christians, but it's never occurred to them to actually move on with the Lord. Because they've been converted under this put your hand up and get saved idea. You know, people come into the church, there's no demands, you come in, you join the body of Christ, you do what you like, you know, you live how you like. There's no demands on holiness, there's no discipline if people's lives are out of accordance with the Bible. And is it surprising that we're such a weak and a powerless church? One thing that, that I'm absolutely convicted of, and I know that this is true, that as the Holy Spirit moves and really restores the church so that we come back to governing ourselves precisely as the Bible says, is that there are going to be a lot of Christians who find themselves put out of fellowship from the church. And I mean that. I mean that absolutely. Now, please God, they can be put out of fellowship. Satan will deal with them. They'll be handed over to Satan, they'll come to repentance, and then they'll come back into the church, and they'll be fully restored. But it's a very, very sad thing that there are so many Christians who, in effect, they will live how they like. They will marry non-Christians if they like. They will commit adultery. They will have fellowship with darkness. They just won't care. They'll do what they like. And any attempt to kind of say, now look, this is wrong, this has got to stop, you have an explosion. Oh, who, who are you, you know, authoritarian? And usually ministers and elders and things like that usually haven't got the nerve to say, brother, go and come back when you're surrendered to God. Now this is one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do. It's going to take courage on behalf of church leaders. And every now and then I've known it to happen. And quite rightly, elders will realise, now look, this person, you know, they've been warned, it's been pointed out to them and they're still carrying on in blatant sin. We're going to put them out of the church. So the elders eventually do it. Amen. Absolutely. They obey the Lord. And there's an uprising in the church. You can't do that. And the whole church gangs up on the minister or something. You see the kind of mess we're in. It's because we've compromised. But the Holy Spirit is working. And he's really, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to do a thorough job. So Satan found out that this temptation didn't work. 
and then the devil left him. Now, James 4 verse 7, he says this, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee far from you. Now that is our campaign of action in the war. We've seen the enemy. We know a little bit more how our enemy attacks us. But this is our slogan. This is our promise from our general. This is our guarantee of victory. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee far from you. Now then, very often, in our Christian lives, we leave the first bit out. And what we quote is we quote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We say, you resist the devil and he'll go. And many, many Christians are saying, I am resisting, but he ain't going. And the reason is, many, many promises of God have a condition. And you'll only receive the promise when you fulfill the condition. And the condition here is twofold. Submit yourself to God. Then resist the devil. But if you're not submitted to God, Satan will not listen to you when you say, in Jesus' name, go. Very often when we bind Satan and come against him, which is a great thing to do, we can end up doing it as if in Jesus' name is a magic charm. As if it's a magic word. And when Satan hears the word, oh, I've heard the name of Jesus, I've got to go. That's daft. That's really silly. If we stand against Satan in Jesus' name, Satan flees because Jesus backs up our statement. When we take authority in Jesus' name, uh, Jesus is there with the muscle to carry through what we have said. But if we're not in submission to Jesus, if we're not living day by day in surrender to him, then we're not under his authority, therefore there's no way we can take authority over the devil. This is very often what happens. We resist, we resist, we resist. Nothing happens, Satan's still around. And we've got to understand this, Satan came at the end of Jesus' time in the wilderness. Jesus wasn't there for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted. Jesus basically spent most of the time in the wilderness. He was getting hungrier and hungrier, weaker and weaker, and it was then, right at the end, that Satan came. Now then, understand this, Satan will attack at the moment of our greatest weakness. You see, it would have been silly for Satan to come along 24 hours later and say, come on Jesus, turn bread into stone, you see, turn stones into bread. Because Jesus probably wouldn't have even been hungry then. Can you see, it would have been a silly temptation at that point. Satan waits until we're worn down by the difficulties of the situation. And he will strike when we are at our weakest. He came to Jesus when Jesus was at his weakest. And this is interesting. Because, yeah, tactically... It's far better to attack the enemy when he's weak. Don't attack him when he's strong. That's silly. Wait till he's tired himself out, then attack. So it seems that Satan attacking when we're at our weakest, that seems to go in his favour. But it doesn't, because Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because if Satan comes along, I mean, you just move into a situation, it's... It's no problem. The difficulties of it haven't started to wear you down yet. All right? And, um, you know, and, and the, that, that is the time when you would fight in your own strength and lose. But God waits until you've been worn down. And only then does he allow Satan to attack. And the reason Satan is allowed to attack then is that it's because in our absolute weakness we say, Lord, I can't stand anymore. 
Now, when we feel like that, we have a choice. We can either collapse and fall to bits, or we can say, Lord, I can't do any more, but Lord, I'm trusting you to do it through me now. Can you see it? So the fact that God makes Satan wait until we're at our weakest is in actual fact an advantage for us. And then, when Satan does go, in verses 2 to 3 we're told that when he left, the angels came and they ministered to Jesus. Now then, can you imagine, just think back to the temptations that Satan has given to Jesus. Come on, get bread, because you're hungry. Or, um, you know, come on Jesus, um, my goodness, throw yourself off the temple and then you'll know that you're the Son of God. All these temptations, and yet within minutes of Satan going, Jesus is sitting there in the wilderness with angels. With angels. I'll bet then he ate as much bread as he wanted. And he couldn't have asked for a better confirmation of who he was because he's sitting in the wilderness with the angels. Now can you see that? Isn't it silly when we give in to Satan? Because God, whatever Satan offers us, God has always got something better. And if we just resist and put aside and leave alone what Satan is offering us, then if we get through that and say, Satan, no, I refuse it, then we can come into what God's got for us. And it's always much, much better. So in some ways, even from the point of view of sheer selfishness, you do yourself a favour by going with God and ignoring the devil. It's even from a purely point, you know, selfish point of view. I mean, if I had the choice to sort of work, uh, say, for a bloke who'd only just started his business and he was really poor and he could only pay me 20 quid a week, and then someone who was successful and he said, oh, I can pay you 500 pounds a week, well, obviously, I would be wise to go with the one who can give me everything. Well, that's precisely what God has done. He's given us everything. Doesn't it make sense, even from a selfish point of view, to go with God every time? The last five minutes of faith is often the hardest. Remember that. But remember, when you've only got five minutes to go, then the deliverance is coming. And Satan will turn on his attack more and more. Just hang in there a bit longer. Because whereas Satan might be offering you ridiculous things, God may well have some angels on their way to come and feed you. It's always better to go with God. Notice as well, Jesus didn't get into any arguments with the devil. Don't argue with Satan, you'll lose. If you start debating with him and throwing forward, you know, yes, I know Satan, but argue and you're finished. Jesus simply quoted the word of God. That's all he did. Jesus never argued with the devil. Uh, I've even known people when they cast out demons, they like to pick arguments with the demons. That's ridiculous. Just cast them out. Jesus didn't spend time arguing with them. And Jesus didn't spend time arguing with Satan. He just said, Satan, you're wrong. It is written. Bang. Go. And it's interesting, because here, in our versions, it says, you know, that Jesus said, go, be gone, Satan. Now, in the Greek, Jesus didn't say, be gone, Satan. He says, Satan, go now from me and keep going. It's much, much stronger in the Greek. You know, so when Satan, when Jesus came across Satan, he told Satan where to go. He didn't toy with him, he just told him where to go. And that's what we ought to do as well. And then just two more things in Luke's account of the same story, which is in Luke. Don't bother to turn it up. But it says this, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed. Now this is why I've said that there weren't just three temptations in the wilderness. We've got three recorded for us. But understand that when the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness, 
Satan was allowed to test, tempt Jesus with everything he could possibly think of. And it's precisely the same with you and I. It is a tough battle. Satan will do absolutely everything that he can. We would be silly to expect our Christian lives to be easy. That would really be silly. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that following Jesus is easy. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus emphasised to people how difficult it was. We are not promised ease in the Christian life, but we are promised victory. And then also in Luke, it said that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. So whereas this round, round one, with the devil was over as it were, round two was not that far away. And Jesus knew full well that though that bit was over, Satan would be back as soon as he thought the new approach. This is something you and I must be guarded about. Don't expect the battle to end until either one, you die, or pop your clogs, as a friend of ours says, or when the rapture comes. Then the battle's over, because one way or the other, we're back in heaven, and there's no war there. But until the day that we're in glory with the Lord, this battle with Satan will go on. But there's a lovely picture that the Lord gave me about this, and he showed me that spiritual warfare is like a boxing match. And there are so many times, I know for me, when Satan comes along and whatever the attack is, that often it, it throws me headlong. And, and I find that I, I've failed completely. I mean, I've taken the bait and I've done what Satan wanted. I've sinned, I've been selfish, or I find that, oh my goodness, yes, I was deceived about that. And I find that, if you like, I've lost rounds. Now, what the law showed me is that in regards to us as Christians with the devil, that spiritual warfare is like a boxing match. You may lose quite a few rounds on points, but the thing is, the knockout is guaranteed. And with a boxer, even if he's been beaten on points for eight rounds, if he gets the knockout in the ninth, he has won. Now that's what it's like. We mustn't be discouraged by our defeats and failures. We may have lost every round so far. Sometimes I feel I have. But the point is that we have got the knockout. That final victory is absolutely assured from Jesus. And we can rejoice in this. No matter what Satan does in our lives, no matter how successful it seems to be doing, we can know that on the basis of our continued repentance and submission to God, even what Satan may consider to be his most spectacular victories over us, when we repent, are then turned into the means of the most spectacular victory over Satan. The Bible says all things work together for good to them that love God and accord according to his purposes. Now one of the amazing things is this, even when Satan has got you to sin, even when Satan has brought you to utter failure and ruin, if we repent, then even that sin and that ruin will work together for good for us. So be encouraged, because in this spiritual warfare, the truth of the matter is that assuming that we continue in surrender and dependence on Jesus, we cannot lose. It doesn't matter what happens, we cannot lose. We can only win. And that is precisely what's going to happen.